I see young people getting to a point where they're like, I don't want to live my life like this. Yeah. I have what I thought I needed and I'm not happy. But why? And then you bring them to an experience of faith and they're like, this is it. This is it. How can you build a culture that's self-evangelizing? How can you rescue young people from the hunting anxiety that closes into their hearts? Today, in this first episode, Father Agustino Torres gives us powerful insights into how leaders can impact not just one generation of Catholics, but an entire culture. In a leadership position of a nonprofit with employees who are, who are feeding their families on, on, on what is, is kind of like coming through me, I felt all the world coming on top of me. And in a way, it was my own history that was coming up like, you know, what do you think you're doing? You're just a Mexican from South Texas. And then I was just, I kind of sat with that and I thought to myself, but it's not true. You're about to hear how the church needs to find new ways to reach out to those who thirst for Christ. The church, through all of us, needs to show the world a new, joyful and merciful face that draws people into the vibrant heart of Catholicism. This is Living the Call. Friends, I'm really thrilled to be able to be here with Father Agustino Torres, Franciscan Friar, the Renewal, co-founder of the Corazón Puro Apostolate, and in some respects, you know, a very active member of the Catholic media space, um, and somebody who I've been paying attention to and, and really digging all of your work, Father Agustino. So welcome to the show. Welcome to Southern California. Thank you very much, Charlie. It's, it's, it is a blessing to be in Southern California. Even though we didn't uh, call up any good weather for you here. Freezing and cloudy, but... Uh, this is much better than the freezing and clouding of New York. Let that's me true. Tell you. <laughs> that's true. Do you, do you get to L.A. much? Like, have, is this a place where you come to a lot, or...? Um, Pre-COVID, I used to come to uh, L.A., Orange County, about between three and five times a year. Okay. So, you know, decent. Okay. And, I mean, any... Is this like your, I mean, I know you're from South Texas, but originally, and now you've been in New York for quite a while, is Southern California like a place that ever called to you in that way? Like a place that you'd like, you know, this is a good place. Like I could see myself doing ministry out here, working out here more, being being out here more. Or no, you're more of an urban guy um, or well, city guy. That's a good, that's a good question. I think that um, uh, you know, for my vocation, you know, mm -hmm. we, we uh, serve where there's a friary. And so uh, if we've discerned there being a friary here, absolutely. You'll be here in a second, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so uh, some of those things were looked into. We actually just opened up a place in Oakland. Oh. So there was a little bit of a, of a discernment going on between Bay Area or Southern California. And um, Oakland is Oakland, so that's oh, why yeah. we're there. <laughs> that's super interesting. Yeah, I mean, like, what goes into that decision-making, just out of curiosity? Do you, like, how do you end up tossing the coin, ended up in Northern Cal and Southern California? Great question. Complicated answer. It's it's just really, um, there's a lot of prayer that goes into it. There's mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, visitation, seeing what's available. So we don't own any immovable property. Mm -hmm. And so some of it depends on what is available for us to move into. Gotcha. Um, and so, uh, and and then we try to talk about the vision that, that the bishop has because we want to serve the, the pastoral plan of the bishop. And uh, it just ended up, um, we had had connection with Oakland for years, literally like two bishops ago in, mm -hmm. in Oakland, mm -hmm. we were looking to move over there. And we just we just felt like, you know, we wanted to be faithful to that. Uh, we said that we were going to look into it 
um, it's got to be 10 years ago now. And then it's kind of come true for a whole bunch of stuff happened between right. then. Right. And we felt like, you know what, this is the right thing. They had a, they had a place that was just right off of International Boulevard, which mm. is which is totally our scene, you know, um, just walking the streets oh, where yeah. the people are at. And so we're in Oakland. Some of the best stuff that I've seen uh, video-wise on YouTube of the Friars um, is just the kind of walking on the street, the stuff in the city that you guys do. It's so cool because it's so real. And I think, you know, I always, I, I used to spend a ton of time in New York, a ton of time. My, in my professional work, I would go 40 plus times a year. And on a few occasions, I saw religious walking the streets in New York, sisters or, um, you know, or brother religious. And it's arresting in that environment. People are like stunned by that, right? It's like, it's got, you got to have had, I mean, innumerable amount of experiences doing that, that have got to be amazing. Like you got to look and say, thank you, Jesus, every time something like that happens, right? I mean, it's just unbelievable to, to think about it. Uh, so some secrets of the trade here. Yeah, please. Uh, that's the bread and butter of my preaching, you know. That's whenever I get asked to go to go speak somewhere, like really the the basis or or the uh, the kind of like the, um, the the storytelling is is stuff that happens in New York, and stuff that has happened oh, in other places too. You know, it's like these experiences with real people yeah. in real time, stuff that really happens. That's just quite quite frankly, it's it's amazing. It's amazing, and and sometimes I stand back and I'm just like, that really happened, mm-hmm. um, and and it's it's everything from like amazing beautiful tear jerking to straight up dangerous and and all of it you know um is a story to be told uh and it and it serves uh conveying the message that i have been entrusted with to people who are coming from all different um places and so it's new york i, I think the, i forget the name of the uh, the playwright it says new york i they asked if, if he wanted to live in new york he says no 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 new york is the theater um, wow. you know, so like, it's, it's kind of like a, a brand in itself. Sure. People are associated with it. And when you tell a story from New York, it's kind of like they have some way of connecting. And then from that connection, we make more connections. Do you think that I've never heard it put that way, but do you think that it's a hallmark of great preaching or preachers that the storytelling aspect First of all, that there be a storytelling aspect, because we've heard all kinds of preachers and some of them tell great stories, other ones don't necessarily. But to the extent that there's storytelling in that, do you think it's a hallmark that people are, you know, in Spanish it'd be empapado, right? Like just kind of soaked full of like a real experience with people. Because I never thought about it that way, but it's true. If you've actually run into people and ministered to them and been there in front of them, it probably makes good fodder for preaching, for a homily and for other ways to preach. Um. The- like you said, there are there are many different uh, styles, mm-hmm. and um, I sometimes love the, the 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 very straightforward, very clear, like a catechetical or an mm. instructional. Um, but I'm where I'm at, you know, and so um, most people need to to have their attention grasped, and the way you do that is with stories, um, and that's been my experience, and and that's my style uh, because I, I know that I'm I'm preaching to a certain demographic that, um, you know, they're, they're not going to be biblical scholars. Yeah. Um, they're not going to be, you know, like the, the super high level stuff that, and there's, there's preachers out there that, that do the sure. super high level and praise God. Uh, I know that I'm meant to, to, to preach to, to the people, to the guy in the street, to the guy in the street corner, to the guy who's doing his nine to five, the guy who has to commute over two bridges to get to work and does that for the love of his family. Mm-hmm. Those are the people that, that I'm speaking to and stories of the everyday speaks to them. They, 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 it gives it an authenticity that sometimes, especially in New York, 
you got to earn because oh, yeah. credibility, eh, it's earned mm-hmm. and we need to earn it. How many years have you been preaching? How long have you been a priest? I've been a priest for, it's going to be 13 years in May. Okay. Thanks be to God. Has, has your preaching evolved and changed in that 13 years, do you think? Hmm. Thinking, processing, sinking information here. <laughs> um, I think so. Uh-huh. Uh, so there's the 10,000 10, hours uh, law, whatever you want to call it, Ma- Malcolm Gladwell. Um, I have been assigned by my community to be a full-time preacher for the last six years, seven years. Oh, wow. And so it, the, what's changed is my categories, my processes, my, my um, strategy has gotten quicker. So um, I am able to put together a, a pretty good length talk in a shorter amount of time. And so with that being, with, with less pre-production necessary, mm-hmm. I can de- dedicate more time to prayer. I can d- dedicate more time to other things like running nonprofits or mm-hmm. to, to being on committees. And, um, and that is something that has changed because it used to, what used to take me a week to do, I can now do in a, in a couple hours. Do you ever find that some of the homilies that maybe you feel the Lord most active in are the ones you had the least amount of time to prep? Does that happen to you? Um, or just like the spur of the moment ones. I'm sure you've had to preach like just, oh yeah, father's here. Let's have mass. And like, next thing you know, you're like, what am I going to preach about? So I've, I've, I've definitely, uh, you know, uh, gotten some base hits when, when, uh, I'm, it's on the spot. There's a whole science to, to speaking when you're on the spot, impromptu speaking, there's a whole science to it and I've studied it and there's, there's skills that are associated with it. Just like the, the, the rappers that, that, um, oh yeah, off the dome. Off the dome, yeah. But it's a lot of practice that goes into sure. into what what they what they do when mm-hmm. they're when they're battling. Mm-hmm. Um, so too with you know being put on the spot. Um, and uh, so yes, but I think that the best homilies that or the best preachings that I have ever done is when I put in the time to prep. Yeah. And then something happens mm. that all that prep time, I know God wants me to speak a certain word. And so I don't know if that would have happened had I not put in the prep time right. to be able to speak a word that, and, and you hear it from the feedback, like Absolutely. when you said this, and I'm like, I had no intention I of saying that, that. Yeah. So praise God. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It's funny the the idea of that prayer and sort of resting on the word and hearing something back. That's the message that God wants you to convey. That's my, that's always my prayer. Whenever I get a chance to preach is I just want to say what God wants me to say. Funny today, which I don't always use stories, but today I did. Today I had a chance to actually tell a story um, that was pretty central to the message that I was trying to convey. And it was about my brother. My dad was a very creative disciplinarian. And so one time we got into an argument, like a verbal argument going back and forth in a spat. And I was nine or 10 years old. But on this particular occasion, I escalated things for some reason. And I took a swing at my brother and my dad, you know, did the thing that dad's doing. He went like, you know, come over here. And he asked me which hand I used to to try to swing my brother. And I showed him my right hand. And then he called my brother over and he put his hand in my hand, right? He said he had his hold hands and then he got masking tape from the, from the kitchen drawer and he wrapped our hands. And it happened to be the day that my mom had all her errands to run. And we literally were taped to one another the entire day. But the lesson there for me anyway, was this, you know, amazing uh, bond that I have with my brother, with my family member. 
And I remembered it forever, and I never forgot that message. My brother and I are incredibly close now, right? I mean, he's just like, and so, you know, I use that as a way to kind of show the creativity of God's commandments, but that there's always, even if we don't understand it, there's always something there that he's trying to show us and teach us. But storytelling, I think, is particularly meaningful, and you guys with the Franciscans and the work that you do is very much wrapped around that. I want to get to a bunch of stuff. Like, we're going to need like nine hours, but we don't have nine hours. So I'm going to have to go through a bunch of these things. But um, there's a lot of people who don't know Really about the Franciscans. Don't know. I mean, they, they understand the or the renewal. The Franciscans or the renewal. They know about Franciscans maybe vaguely in general, but um, this is a relatively new order. And I know you've probably talked about this a million times. But just for the benefit of our audience, tell us a little bit about the order, the charism. Like, what's the focus? You know, how does it how does it look in res- with respect to other to other religious orders? And like, how do you why do you choose to to uh, to explore being a Franciscan friar of the renewal? Awesome. Uh, So the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal were founded in 1987 in New York City, and uh, the starting eight brothers that joined belonged to the Capuchin Franciscans, uh, mostly New York, New Jersey, and they all felt a call to go deeper, to to be more intentional. you know, it's it's um, over time, things just develop in a certain way, and they felt like it's time for us to kind of like start from scratch again. And so the inspiration, very much inspired by Mother Teresa, was to go into the neighborhood that nobody else wanted to go to and to serve there, uh, to serve especially the homeless, to serve um, the, uh, if you will, the lepers of our day. St. Francis went to the lepers, who were the undesirables, of the society and the time. And so we felt, who are the undesirables? That's who we desire to be with. And we saw a couple of things. We saw that, you know, like um, parishes are great and parishes serve an incredible thing, but we wanted to, inspired by the example of St. Francis, go back to the way it was before. St. Francis wasn't running parishes. And running parishes is, is a lot of work. Sure. A good work. Oh, yeah. But um, we we wanted to kind of focus in on that, our, our charism to... Um, serve the poor, to love the poor, but also uh, to to evangelize, to bring the the gospel to the spiritually poor. And so this is uh, what we felt, uh, our founders felt called to do. This is when the Bronx was burning, you know. Yeah. Was, when, when I first visited, there were still burnt out buildings in the Bronx. It was literally wow. like those movies. Now the Bronx has changed a lot, but not that much. <laughs> right. It's still the Bronx. Um, and so that's our charism. Charism is a gift that the Holy Spirit gives to a, to a religious order to bring to the world. And so we felt inspired to bring um, this service to the poor and this evangelization. And this is uh, what we do. How did I feel called to it? I felt called. Uh, so I was in college and uh, I had begun to feel a, a pull to the priesthood. This is in Texas. I went to school at Seton Hall in New Jersey. In New Jersey. But you're originally from Texas. Originally from Texas. Okay. And um, had I not gone to New Jersey, which was kind of crazy all, all by itself, I don't know if I would have ever come across or even joined the Franciscan Friars. Hmm. So it's kind of like, uh, yeah, God kind of puts things into place. Sure. And um, I, I really, growing up, I wasn't exposed to, to religious men. I had heard about nuns. There was a couple nuns in my in my parish, great women. Um, but to see a group of men dedicated to something, the first time I saw um, 
some religious preaching. It was Father Benedict, mm -hmm. and he brought a brother with him. Now I'm fresh off the boat from Texas, right? And Father Benedict, for our audience, one of the eight founders or co-founders of the order. Correct. Okay. Uh, a famous preacher in his own right, a priest, psychologist, very wise man. I've got a few of his books right behind you, by the way. Excellent. Yeah. It, but he talk about storytelling. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Uh, but I remember seeing him preach and just being mesmerized. Mm. Um, and then I saw the brother that was with him, and I was scandalized. Really? Because, like, it was cold, and he wasn't wearing any socks. And I was just like, what are they doing to these people? Oh, my gosh. This is like, <laughs> feed him, clothe him. Right. This is like, ah. Get this guy a sandwich. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, I, I, and I immediately thought, that's not for me. It's it's like mm, okay. Now, at that moment, did you have any sense that there was a variety of different spiritualities? You just didn't even see, you didn't even know men religious really were a thing. Like, where was your level of understanding of what the potential was, or like, well, you know what I mean? Yeah, it existed as an idea, um, mostly guided by the saints. Okay, but I didn't have real experiential uh, expect experiential um, mm -hmm. exposure to them. Mm. I didn't know what it really was. You know, you read about St. Anthony, St. Francis, you read about St. Ignatius and St. Francis Xavier, but you don't know the the inner life of religious life. And like, and I think that um, that's something that's, that's such a need in areas that have not had that in a long time. Um, young men, young women need to see what this life is like because there's a misconception out there. But, you know, that aside, I, I began to feel called when I was um, really battling, like, what does it mean that I could be called to be a priest? And um, I think the struggle to, like, you know, ask, am I being called, forced me hmm. to pray. Because I was like, look, I have this, un this restlessness within my heart. And like, I need to do a, I need to do a holy hour every day and all, yeah, I wasn't batting a thousand, you know, but I tried in college to pray a holy hour. Mm. Um, uh, say what you want about Catholic universities. At least there was a chapel that I could go with the blessed sacrament. Amen. That's um, true. And there was always confession. There was always priests around, you know, so like you could just talk to a priest at Seton Hall. And I was like, ah, you know, and, and some of their advice uh, really formed the the path that I took. So so thanks be to God for those men. Um, and so finally, when I graduated, I went and I visited the brothers, um, and all the stuff that I had learned through my struggle, like I knew that I had to have a strong Marian devotion. The rosary was such a part of how I learned to hear God's voice. Mm. I needed a Eucharistic holy hour, and um, and also. At the time, it was Pope John Paul II. I knew the papacy and, and the teachings of the church were so much a part of my formation. Hmm. Like those three things were very important. And when I when I meet the friars and I see the friars, all those things were were built into the life. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh my gosh. You know, I, there was a time, it's not so much now, thanks be to God, where you were kind of like, you're excessive if you wanted to pray the rosary every day and you're like, no, it's those this pious devotion yeah. you know we don't have to oh. worry about that mm -hmm. and that was a phase for those of you who don't know that was a phase in the church that i think i hope is over mm -hmm. um although these things always rear their ugly heads um and so i was kind of like in some circles where people were saying bro 
you just need to relax. You know, things are gonna. I was like, no, this is what I know. Like this is what I learned in my in my home. The rosary, Marian devotion, Eucharistic adoration. These were like the hallmarks of of my connection with God, and to see that in the friars as the way of life, I was like, oh, I'm home. Yeah. And when I when I learned about their charism, I'm like, ah, you know, work with the poor is a passion for me. And it's in my blood because this is what my parents taught me. You know, this is what what our families uh, fought for. And I was like, hold on a second, what's going on here? This is like, this is really connecting. Yeah. And let's let's go back. Let's go to that family for just a second. So South Texas, you know, um, Mexican descent, right? All of that. The faith, um, obviously, from a cultural standpoint, is always very deeply imbued in the Mexican culture. In fact, we were talking earlier that I lived for a period of time in Mexico. And it's it's always such a grace that the faith is all around us. But in some cases, in some, and it was my experience in some phases of my life, that because the faith was everywhere, it was easy to sort of forego it, ignore it, take it for granted, that kind of thing. And it wasn't for me until I moved back to the States that I had to purposely, intentionally go, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Like, I have to sort of raise my hand and say that. Talk to me about, like, the your upbringing, right? And maybe not, you don't have to go into great detail, but just tell me about, like, where you think those seeds came from that were sown, and how did you distinguish between this sort of, like, the customs and traditions and things that were part of your family and this, you know, pearl of great price, this, like, you know, great, amazing, everything you've just said, the teachings and the catechism and just the richness and the saints and everything. Um, how, how, did, how was that for you? Um briefly my both my parents grew up catholic uh my mom very much so my father culturally so hmm. and um both my parents uh stepped away from the church during that period that's called the 70s oh yeah <laughs> and they it happens to coincide with when the rosary was part of your childhood faith and we had to get rid of it yeah and they that's very true they uh, they got caught up in different ideologies, sure. some some you know like uh, you know civil rights stuff, and uh, and so when I was born, actually, um, you know my my parents were very much against organized religion, and they saw it as an oppressor wow. of the people that they were trying to 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 help and assist, and they were very serious about about uh, helping people uh, in need, and so I kind of grew up with that. My parents eventually separated. My mom uh, went on pilgrimage to Medjugorje. And I know that that's somewhat controversial, but uh, but my mom, this is my experience, my mom went there and she had a conversion mm. and she came back a woman in love with God. Wow. And uh, it changed our family dynamic. I wasn't baptized until I was a teenager wow. because, you know, parents didn't want that to sure. happen. Sure. And so she came mm. back and, and she said, we're becoming Catholic. You guys are getting baptized and, and we're doing this. I was like, mm, okay. Yeah, sounds good. And uh, <laughs> I, there was there was faith there, right. but it was so minuscule. Like I mm. did believe I asked a lot of questions in my RCIA class, and God bless Sandy Austin. I'll never forget her. God bless her wherever she is. She so patiently answered all my my pesky questions, and I was like, okay, I'll do this. I'll do this. And that little yes that I said when I was in, when I was just a teenager. Um, the Lord kind of put me on a turbo blast of mm. of, uh, of, of faith. And so uh, I went through my phases, uh, but when it became real for me is when uh, I went on a retreat 
and I, I just had an experience. I wasn't meant to go on that retreat. I had other plans. Oh yeah. When I went on that retreat, and there, it's like three things happened. I was convinced that God really does exist. I um, was convinced that this God loves me, which is actually a big leap. And I was convinced that there was a battle going on for my soul. And up until that point, by not doing anything, I was letting the wrong side win. Wow, that's a heck of a retreat. Oh my gosh, boy was it. Wow. And and I began to slowly to change. Mm. One by one, this, these things started kind of like getting weaned off. The Lord is so merciful in, in like knowing, okay, now we got to work on this. I, I wouldn't be able to... It was it was almost textbook mm -hmm. of how you lead someone slowly from a life of sin to a life of grace, um, and so I'm convinced that the prayers of my grandmother, God rest her soul, oh, uh, were coming for me. I'm convinced that the prayers of all the holy, holy uh, deceased ancestors in, in my family line were praying for me because it's just too crazy. Of those three things that you mentioned, right? God is real, or God exists. He loves me, and there's a spiritual battle that's happening. Now, you mentioned those in a particular order, perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps because they're sort of emblematic of how you kind of went through those particular steps. You work a lot with young people now. Where do you think they're at in relation to those three? Is it the same order? Is there one that's higher priority? Like, where are we now in terms of some of those doubts or questions or, or uh, you know, stages of the faith walk? Great question. I think that um, depending on who we're talking about— there's the um, the Saint Francis uh, saints in waiting. There's the Saint Therese's of the world, and there's the Saint Augustine's. Oh, okay. Um, and so I'm I, in the latter category. <laughs> man, that makes two of us. Um, that's my name. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that there's there's some people that are gonna try to choose, try to fulfill their the the burning desire in their hearts, like Saint Francis did. And they're going to give themselves to to worldly pursuits. You know, they want success. They want the money. They're they're looking for it for attention. They're trying to kind of be all that. And and they're going to come to a point where it's it's going to leave them empty. And then and then right there, you come in with the fulfilling love of God mm. to the Francis's of the world. That's um, like break down in order to break through. Sort of, you got to get to that bottom first. Is that unfortunately, I think so today. With the incredible amount of resources that are put into entertainment, the incredible amount of of wealth that's mm. possible mm. today, yeah, yeah, you have to get to a point. Uh, well, hopefully not. I see young people getting to a point where they're like, "I don't want to live my life like this. Yeah. I have what I thought I needed, and I'm not happy. But why?" And then you bring them to an experience of faith, and they're like, "This is it. This is it." Hmm. This is it. Um, and so uh, with the Augustans of the world, I think that they need to know that there's the battle. Um, and uh, and when that battle becomes evident, they see that it's real. Now, maybe they don't know the love of God first. Maybe they know the battle first, but that's okay. Uh, the Therese's, they, they, um, they encounter the love of God first. Hmm. And it's beautiful. And I need people like this in my life. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's transformative when it happens. I mean, it's like you don't have to tell them a single thing. It's not an intellectual thing. 
Yeah, that's interesting. You know, we were talking earlier too, not not here before this podcast, but on our earlier phone call about how the whole idea of evangelism and apologetics has evolved in this country and people have less maybe concerns about any sort of Protestant vis-a-vis Catholic issues, but it's more about other things, right? It's the culture against, you know, the way that we um, that we uh, propose to live our lives. And I'm wondering, like, in your work, and I want to get to Corazón Puro in particular, because I'm guessing that a lot of the things that we've talked about were the, the genesis or the thrust behind beginning Corazón Puro. But when you when you work with young people today, what are the issues that come up? What are the things that you hear maybe more most consistently keeping either these Augustines or Therese's from taking that additional step? And I know it varies for each one, but the the moment we're living in, I guess, is what I'm saying. In your experience, what are those obstacles that you come across the most? The obstacles to faith is like, is this really real? Is this really gonna gonna um, gonna fulfill me? Uh, there's the whole scientism. Uh, error of like you know like if I don't have if I don't have evident proof of this I don't know if I can believe it um, but I, what I see in the young people today now more than ever is like there's this this haunting anxiety mm. that um, that you talk about a pandemic um, it affects the young people and it paralyzes them and I think that the causes can be many. Uh, but, but that is probably the most common thing I'm seeing now. Wow. Which is borne out by the data, by the way. I mean, the data on anxiety and depression and all these things is sky high for Generation Z and Generation Alpha and the younger generations. Um, so it's definitely borne out by the science itself that says that. What's that about? Um, St. John Paul II, uh, when in his work with young people, he wanted to give them what he called a full life project. And I think that it has something to do with feeling like your life is just binging on Netflix, seeing how many likes you have, seeing how many people are following you, and 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 like existentially or subconsciously realizing it still doesn't satisfy, and and that leads to um, an, an an angst. It's like, what does my life mean if it's just this? But the thing is, like, it has such a gravity that it's hard to kind of break through that. Yeah. Um, and the, and it's stacked against you in a way, right? A lot of these platforms and things are built in a way where it keeps you coming at that hamster wheel, right? It's like the next video, the next thing, and just keeps feeding you in this sort of. Um, you know, that's sadly the world that I have a lot of experience in. And, and I know that the way that these things are sort of stacked against folks, but, but how important it is, you know, and maybe more to, to, uh, to the idea of what we can do about it, to utilize some of these platforms as, or, and methods as a mission field in a way, right? To get sort of the message out in those same circles and platforms. And do you think we're doing that well, effectively as a church? No. I think that we have begun yeah. to 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 uh, approach doing it well. I think that um that we're figuring it out. I think that we are figuring out that that there's some things like a podcast that we can actually, if we put our mind to it, we can do well. There's things like if we invest in in, in like uh, a good video, you know, like we're seeing how that has some power. But as a church, I think that we're trying and we're getting there. Um, but I think that you know. When, when the church put her mind on art in the Renaissance, 
we captured the imagination of the world. What does it look like for the church to capture the imagination of the world in in the in the age of of social media? That's what I want to see. Mm. Wow. Maybe a good segue then there to talk about some of the work that you're doing with Corazon Puro in particular. Now, I want to just give people a little bit of context in terms of the genesis of that idea, that apostolate. Um, talk to us a little bit about that and the, and where that came from. So Odette Bissonneau, mm-hmm. Dominican single mom, she came up to me and she said, Father, we need to do something. I have these young women that want to be formed in wearing a chastity ring. Can you help us? And at the time, I had been studying, like nobody's business, uh, John Paul II's theology. Not just his theology of the body. People think that that's all he wrote. He wrote a <laughs> he whole wrote a lot of stuff. And it's really one star in a constellation of his, mm-hmm. of his um, theology of what it means to be human, which we call human anthropology. And, and I was like, I love this, but I want to bring this to the people who have no chance of going to this expensive conference somewhere i want to bring this to the streets and when she came up to me i was like well hold on okay is there something happening as and i said find me six young people who are interested in this and she did and these young people absolutely blew us away at their faith at their desire at their need Hmm. for formation we start with a couple formation talks and they absolutely flew wow like how come no one i don't know how many times a young person has told me this how come no one told us this? If I had heard this five years ago, my life would be different. Thus was born Corazon Puro. I have uh, I had the good the great privilege to go uh, to Israel to the Holy Land um, about uh, I think it was seven years ago now eight years ago, and I went with uh, an apologist named Steve Ray. You may recognize Steve Ray. Um, some of you may also recognize him in the audience. But in any case, he told the story. He told a great storyteller. And on the bus rides, going to different places, the one story that really stuck with me was the one that he told about his thinking, in his own mind, right as he thinks about his ministry and the people he's talked to and all the folks he's met and everything, is the great fear that at some point he gets, you know, he passes and he gets to heaven. And on the way there, he comes across somebody who asks him, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? Right? So now he tries to force that, right? He forces, wears a big crucifix. He travels all over the place. People ask him, what's that about? And so he, you know, he, he, he beckons and welcomes those kind of inquiries because his big driver is, I never want to hear the words, why didn't you tell me? And I've always thought that's like so, so impactful, but exactly related to what, to what you said, right? These people are going, hey, where has this all been? Because I've been ready. Exactly. And they've heard all the lies. They've been there. They've done that. And, and they know. I remember one time a, a, a feisty Puerto Rican Dominican, the violent mix. Yeah. Mm. Uh, she said that she started her testimony off uh, like, I remember the last time I had sex. And she was like, you could hear a pin drop. Everyone's attention was right there. And she said, and I remember asking God, is that it? Wow. Is that all there is? And I'll just never forget that. Because this is the question that we're answering. And and we're saying there is so much more. Mm. Let me tell you some of those things. You've touched on the fact, and I agree with you, uh, Dominican-Puerto Rican mix is very interesting. Not going to come across <laughs> anybody uninteresting in that category. But, um, you know, you've done a, a lot of your ministry it works is working with young people, and young people in the U.S., by definition, are much more diverse, much more Latino-based. Um, in particular there, uh, just because it's subject matter that I'm very interested in, is 
what do you think? I mean, like, what what, are, what have been strategies? And you talk about some of the work you're doing now with Corazón Puro that maybe looks to communicate and impact these communities in a little bit of a different way. Where have we done well with the Latino community? Where do we still have some ways to go? Like, what's your experience there? My experience is that um, there's a couple of things that we have done well in that it's it's unfortunate, but in a way a blessing that uh, there's kind of two churches in the United States. There's an English-speaking church, and then there's like an ethnic church that is language-based. And in the Latino community, because this is also the case in the Vietnamese church, in Correct. the in the Cyril Malabar church, that, yep. you know, and they're they're experiencing the same dynamics as the Latino church. Um, and so these young people they grow up in two realities. And so what the church has done well is is being a place where the culture can flourish, so that the culture can continue. But in that, what we need to learn how to do better is we need to translate that culture to the next generation because it's been protected and sustained by the, by the generation that's either the first generation or the generation that's, that's more church-going, and we need to learn how to translate that, put mm. it in the terms of the young person. It's not that they're against it. It's that they feel like it needs to be them. Mm. And so when you do that you see a young person's life transformed. Hmm. And I've seen that. And that's what we try to do. A quick story. Uh, a father brings his son over to the friary. And, and in Spanish, he says, Father, mi hijo no cree. I'm like, okay, all right. You know, that's, um, atheism is kind of like, it's something. He's like, well, let me talk to him. I talked to the kid and he's in high school. And it's not that he doesn't believe. It's just that he doesn't believe like his father believes. Hmm. And so I explained a couple of things to him. I listened to a couple of the problems that he he had a hard time, like, well, if there's a God, then why did this happen? I was like, that's a good question. You go through those questions and then he began to see, and that's what we need to learn how to do better. Wow. Sort of like recontextualize things for, for them and their experience in their way. Now, wh why is that, I, I guess, it, what why is it different? Why, why is the Latino community, you know, different perhaps than these other you know, Vietnamese or Korean. I mean, in, in a way they're sharing the same experience, but we read all over the place about the size and how many Latinos are in the church and, and, and all these different things. Do you think that there's a particular, I don't know, urgency or, uh, or special need in the Latino community? I do. And um, the urgency and the need, I, I feel, are, are both because of uh, context and number. So as far as number, we, we are the largest, um, the Latinos are the largest group of young people in the church already now. Um, and so that deserves attention. But the context is somewhat different than some of these other um, beautiful, awesome ethnic communities in that there was kind of like a big wave of immigration for them. Irish, Italian uh, Vietnamese, right. uh, Indian, it, and some of them are still in that wave, but it's usually a big wave and then it stops. And then they be, then they establish second, third, fourth generation. With the Latino community, the waves have been somewhat constant so that there's always a, if you will, dominant first generation immigrant population that immediately goes to the church and their needs are real. And so what I've seen in the church is that we dedicate 90% of the time to them and they need to be attended to. Sure. But it has been, in my opinion, to the detriment of their kids. Mm. 
And I think that we need to learn how to say, look, the Guadalupanas, the, the, the Grupo Carismatico, you guys have your space. Now I as a priest, now I as a parish minister need to find a way mm. to build space into this parish structure for your kids because we, we're losing them. That's that's uh, that intentionality that you just talked about. I remark on often in the work that 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 I do professionally, but also in my diaconal experience, is this idea of really not relying necessarily on the things of the past in order to achieve the the aims of these future generations. Because to your point, context is different, the needs are different, and if we just rely on the things that worked in the past, they may not exactly transfer in the same in the same way. You've also got a number of media you know, ministries, I, I don't even know what you call them, right? But I would I just put them in the media ministry category. I've got Corazon Puro, Asclic, um, and EWTN, icons, right? Where do you view, I mean, you, you talked about this a moment ago about capturing the imagination of the world, right? To me, those story, media, all of that falls into that equation. How do you view, like, the media world with respect to what you're trying to do and what you're trying to communicate. Like, is there a plan there? Are you just responding to, you know, invitations? Like how, how do you view it? Because you've got incredible preaching, incredible stories to tell. How do you go about actually uh, communicating those? My, my thought behind the, the media projects that I've been um, invited to do is that it, we have to uh, make friends and, and, my heart is for the the young Latino community in this in this world. I'm a priest. I'm ordained not just for them, but for everyone. But that said, I, I feel like um, the church at large, or the 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 phrase I, that comes to mind is that the hegemic culture, the dominant culture, mm-hmm. um, needs to also see a face that's different than what they're used to. Um, and trust me, I know that my face isn't the best looking. I have a face made for radio, so made this is radio. great. This is great. Um, but for them to to hear and see a priest that 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 maybe doesn't fit into their normal categories, I think is necessary yeah. for us to get to where we need to get to as a church here in the United States. Wow. And when, by the way, when you say culture, I, I haven't talked about this, but I mean— you actually studied theology of culture, right? I mean, you studied under the great Cardinal Avery Dulles. I mean, you've got a real, I don't know, affinity and passion for the subject of culture, which drives a lot of this thinking. Absolutely. How can you build a culture that is self-evangelizing? It fascinates me. Mm. Um, and that's what some of the the missionaries did that evangelized Latin America. That's what the Polish priests did when they were under Nazi occupation. Uh, this stuff is the stuff of legend, mm-hmm. and we need to talk more about it. One of the things that I always remark about, and I don't know what you think about this, is the idea of evangelization and going out to the margins, right? Um, obviously, the margins are the poor, the displaced, the broken, um, and and all of that is true in a material sense. Um, people can see that and say, okay, there's a homeless person, there's whatever it may be, skid row, folks on drugs, whatever. But when we live in an American context, and here we are in Los Angeles, right? I mean, I can point to you, stones throw from here, giant mansions in Bel Air and Beverly Hills, where there are people there who need to hear the gospel, need to hear the message of Jesus Christ, and who no one is going to talk to about that, precisely because they have all these sort of things around them. And I I just, I always remark about that because 
you know, the, the, the benefit of media is that it can be, it can trickle out even if you're not there present in front of it, right? It can, it can, it can find the person that God intended it to find. And in often cases, it may be some of those poor in a different kind of way. Absolutely. And so all the more reason, because that poverty, as Mother Teresa said, is, is the deepest poverty. Mm. The deepest poverty in the world that she ever saw was actually when she came to L.A., and she said that there is a poverty here that is 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 um, deeper than the poverty she sees in Calcutta, and um, and just to kind of sit on that for a little bit. Um, mm. uh, but but there's always hope. Uh, there's always uh, a way to to begin to choose and uh, to choose the light, uh, no matter where you're at. If someone here is listening to this and you're thinking this is me, uh, just just start by little steps. And that's how we do everything. Mm, that's awesome. I want to kind of turn the corner and begin to kind of wrap us up, Father, here. And one of the things, is, as you know, we've got people who are have all sort of positions in business and other forms and other walks of life, but they're living their vocation and positions of leadership. And as, you know, one of the sort of occupational hazards of being a leader is that you will fall down and fail. And I want to ask you about maybe a time that you fell down, that you failed, either with Corazón Puro, your media ministry, something else. Talk to us about that and maybe a lesson learned there. Um, well, there was a time where we had a, um, a, uh, some people within our organization. Corazón Puro is a nonprofit, uh, and so we have a couple of employees. And um, one of the employees uh, just kind of began to go off the grid and, um, and you know, planted in some of our benefactors' ears uh, things that weren't true. And so these benefactors, uh, you know, were offended and hurt, mm. and they began to write letters to cardinals and to lawyers and stuff like that. And and all this stuff, like, I, I deal with my own history of being misunderstood. And so in a leadership position of a nonprofit with employees who are, who are feeding their families on, on, on what is, is kind of like coming through me, I felt all the world coming on top of me. And in a way, it was my own history that was coming up. Like, you know, what do you think you're doing? You're just a Mexican from South Texas. And then I was just, I kind of sat with that. Hmm. And I thought to myself, but it's not true. <laughs> and I said, I know that if, if, if I hustle... I know if, if, if I talk to all the people that I can, I know that I belong to a religious order that will listen. I know that I have people on my side. Let me do this. And so it was a hustle. Uh, it was something that you had to really, a hustle, let me, let me define that. Because <laughs> a hustle on the streets can also be something that you do to swindle people. That's not what I mean. I, I had to work very hard. I had to um, engage in the right, the, the, make decisions on the fly. This lawyer, no, this, this lawyer saying this. Uh, we need to, you know, make sure that, you know, there's this, this type of audit, not that type of audit, so that we're completely above board, so that this will never be a question again. Um, and uh, look at our hiring practices. We need to look at, you know, how the, 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 the mental health of the, the employees are. So all of these, these uh, attacks, if, if you will, made us so much better. But there was a decision that I had to make to, because to, I, I could have easily, easily said, you know what, I resign, 
somebody else do this, give this back to the board. But the Lord said, no, mm. I put you there. Now you fight for this. Back to the spiritual battle that you were talking about earlier, you know, when we hear those voices of you're no good, you can't do it, you can't make it. I mean, usually, you know, part of that spiritual battle is discerning where those voices come from, right? Oftentimes it's not from a good place if you're hearing something like that, that kind of accusation, but you stuck with it. You decided to overcome that. And I think that's helpful in all walks of, of life because these things happen, right? In, in leadership positions. All right, Father, very last thing. Off the dome, we're going to go, uh, you know, a couple of things. First of all, I'd love for you to just give us a minute, two minutes, whatever you want, okay? But the audience here, like we talked about, are people who are in positions of leadership or interested in that subject matter. And the way that I view that, especially with business people and others, is that they're kind of like the leaven, right? They're sort of out there in the world and they're sort of, you know, they're, they're opportunities that we have to kind of detonate these folks in a variety of different ways. But if you're going to share one thing, just unencumbered, take a minute, take a minute and a half, whatever, two minutes. What do you, what do you want to say to people who are in those positions, living in this context that we've just described, doing the things that they're doing? What's important for them to hear right now for the benefit of the church I think that there's a lot of people doing a lot of things and to know that when you turn your whatever it is into a prayer and you turn it into an offering of love, you could be sweeping a floor and be changing the world. You could be changing a diaper and be changing the world. But when you are, are intentional about bringing this before the Lord, what you are doing takes on a whole other level. You might be a CEO of Fortune 500 company employing hundreds of people, and that's big. But when you bring the presence of Christ intentionally to what you do, it becomes more. And so that's what I would share. Uh, let it be the more that only God can do when you give it to him. That's beautiful. Thank you, Father. Okay, finally, a little speed round for you. Some really, really, uh, really fun questions. Jesuits or Dominicans, which would make a better astronaut? Jesuits, because they're always out to space. Favorite band or artist when you were 16? Oh my gosh, I think Metallica. And do you still like Metallica? I do. And finally, percentage of active Catholics that know St. Francis of Assisi was a deacon? 5%. Very nice. I think I'd agree with that one. Father, thank you so much for being on the show. Such a great privilege to have you here and, you know, blessings and prosperity for all the work and the ministries that you do. God Praise bless God. you and your order and all the work. And I love Jesuits too. Awesome. No, I know. I know you do. <laughs> all right, my friends. Well, that's us. Uh, keep listening. Keep sending in your feedback. Um, we love you. Do, uh, do everything that you got to do to build up the kingdom of God. And uh, we'll see you again next time. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's call-usa.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Kasten and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.